The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Sure is good to be with all of you. Glad you're here. I hope you all get what you want for Christmas. I already did. You know, it's kind of the lame part about being an adult at Christmas. You just, anyway. <laughs> All right, if you've been here with us the last few weeks, you know we've been doing a series on uh, persuasion. So here's the thing. I've been saying, and I believe that the events of Christmas deserve persuasion. What are the events we're celebrating at Christmas? God came for you. To save you. The eternal Son of God who made everything humbled himself to become human, to become a baby. Um, you know, that's really the biggest miracle, isn't it? And if this is the God man, of course he's going to rise from the dead. The incarnation is shocking that God would come so humbly and so personally, he came to save you. And so, of course, you know, there's two sides of this. One is, I want you to be persuaded of that. I want you to believe it with all your heart. I want it to change you, to own you. Um, I want you to be more persuaded than you already are. I still have areas in my heart of unbelief or of, or of insecurity, not fully devoting myself. I want to I be all in more and more. I want that for you. And then the second part, for everyone who is persuaded, I want you to be a persuader. I want you to go out with the news, with the truth, and persuade others. Let me show you our theme verse again for this month from 2 Corinthians 5.11. Will you read it with me when it's up there? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Is it there? There it is. Okay. Knowing the fear of the Lord, if your life's been changed by the Lord, you worship him, you honor him, what do we do? We persuade. We persuade. Let's remember what that is. It's to convince someone using compelling evidence. So it's not force. Christians have never thought that you should or that you even can produce faith in Christ in someone by force. No way. It's not force, it's not manipulation. It's a clear, sincere, honest presentation of the truth. And for Christians, it's something we are called to do. So since this is the Sunday before Christmas, and amazingly, we live in a culture that still, in general anyway, celebrates Christmas, I wanna think with you specifically this morning about what it might look like to attempt to persuade someone about Jesus and who he is. How would you do this? But before we get there, let me review a little bit on where we've been the last few weeks. Number one, we've seen that persuasion is a huge need. So persuasion is more than just being a nice person for Jesus. That's good. You should do that. But it's more. Persuasion is more than just being ready to tell the gospel when someone asks, asks you a question. You know, I've reminded you of that story in Acts 16, Paul preaches goes to jail, earthquake, the jailer comes and says, Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, 
believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And I think as I read that, you know, I think most of you could, could do that. If somebody came up to you and said, what must I do to be saved? I look around, you'd all be like, ooh, ooh, you know, I know that one. Believe on Jesus, who he is and what he's done, and you'll be saved. And that's awesome. And sometimes that happens. But I don't know, I don't know about you, but how, how many of you had somebody come up to you with that question this week? Or this year? Our culture is not asking the question we have answers for. Now, don't get me wrong, they should be. They should be, but they're not, which means we have to do more than just be ready to tell the gospel when someone asks. We have to engage. We have to persuade. That's the first thing we've seen. It's a huge need. We need to be willing to engage, help people ask the questions they should be asking. Second thing we saw this last week, the biggest challenge we face as persuaders is unbelief. Unbelief is when the heart willfully suppresses truth about God and his world due to a selfish agenda. We looked at that last week. It's all over scripture. And by the way, we all know this, don't we, as Christians? That's not just a problem that's out there. That's a problem that's in here. We have all done this, and we all, in some ways, still do it. So we know about God and his truth, but let's be honest, a lot of times we want to be our own God. I want to do things my way. So we, we invent a story as to why disobeying God is a good idea. Have you ever done that, rationalized something? I have. That's unbelief, suppressing God's truth for a selfish agenda. And so that is the problem we face. But here's the thing. We, we all live in God's world. You can't escape it. You can't say, stop the world I want to get off. We're all here. And so we all believe some sort of truth, even an atheist believes some truth about God's world. But because unbelief creates its pretend story due to its sinful agenda, there's a disconnect between the truth of God's world and the story they're telling themselves, always. So for example, last week we saw a, a professor from the University of Toronto who thinks that values are created by culture. And there is no God who gives authority. And yet she thinks the value of Western culture should be applied to the entire world. Do you see the disconnect? That doesn't make sense. If values are just invented by culture, then each culture should do what they want, and that's right for them. But something in our hearts say, no, it's not right for them. There's something that's above all of us. Well, that comes from living in God's world. So unbelief, there's always a disconnect, a place where the stories we're telling ourselves don't fit with the truth. And that's where the persuader wants to jump in. That's where we engage. That's where we try to talk about the truth. And so we saw last week Paul's strategy for this from Acts 26. How do we engage in unbelief? Number one, we saw you build on common ground. There's always common ground. Somewhere you both say, yeah, that's true. And then you build from that. You work from that. Second, you find and question the disconnect between unbelief and God's world. You find it, you question it. Third, you challenge and resolve that disconnect with the person of Jesus. Now, I know some of you are going, what? And so I want to just do that over again trying to persuade, uh, what would that look like if you did those steps trying to persuade someone about the person of Jesus? How would you do that? 
So what were the three steps? I'm gonna go over it again so that you know it. Build on what? You can tell me. Build on what? Common ground. Find common ground. We both believe this. Let's build on this. Number two, question the disconnect. Do what? Question the disconnect. Where, where does it not fit? Let's question that. Number three, challenge and resolve the disconnect with the person of Jesus. He really is the way, the truth, and the life. So how would we go about trying to persuade others about Jesus? I mean, that's the ultimate issue, isn't it? If somebody believes the right things about Jesus and trusts their heart to him, everything follows. That's, that's the core, isn't it? Who Jesus is. Man, if we could move people towards seeing Christ in his beauty and who he is, that would be the best. And you know what's amazing about this week? It's Christmas. There's nobody in America who hasn't heard of Christmas. Maybe it could be an opportunity to build on common ground with someone, question the disconnect, challenge and resolve it with Christ. So we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna try this out and we're gonna start from Luke 9, verses 18 to 21. And you'll see what Jesus does. You know, no one's a better persuader than Jesus Christ. He's so good. We look with me at this text. Let's just beginning uh, verses 18 to 20. Now it happened that as he, that's Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who did the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Awesome. You'll notice, what does Jesus do twice in this passage? Twice. Questions. He asks two questions. Who do the crowd say that I am? Then he asks, who do you say that I am? A friend of mine sent me an article this week showing that Jesus in the Gospels asked, are you ready, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus asked 135 questions. Some of them go like this, why do you call me good? Some of them go like this, does this offend you? One goes like this, if I speak the truth, why did you hit me? Hmm. Now, what do you think? Was Jesus asking these for his own information? Is that what this question was about? I don't think so. Who were these questions for? They were for his audience. The good teacher comes up and says, Jesus, uh, what must I do to be saved? Does Jesus know the answer to that question? But Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Why is he doing this? Questions, Jesus knows, are amazing. Questions help us stop and think about what we believe. They, they help us stop and think about our motives and what we're doing and why. And hopefully, they help us see a disconnect and make us move towards truth. The rich young ruler asking about how to be saved, he had his concept of goodness all wrong. And Jesus was trying to show him that. Questions, Jesus is teaching us here, questions are powerful. For instance, questions are relational, aren't they? You ever had somebody just tell you the truth? Anybody see Charlie Brown ever? What's the teacher sound like? 
Kids, did you ever feel that way about your parents sometimes? You're listening, you're trying, the eyes roll back in your head. I know, don't, don't answer this. Do you ever feel this way about sermons? No, Pastor Matt, never. <laughs> but think about a question, the right question. A, a question invites relationship. It, it invites participation. Now listen, there is a time and a place for propositional tooth, truth to be told. The Bible doesn't make sense without it. Jesus was very happy to teach. Not ashamed of that. But there's a place for questions. Because questions, all of a sudden, you're drawn in. you you got to think about yourself and what you believe and why and what you're doing. you got to participate. And if you answer, now you're engaging. You're presenting your own, what, what is happening here? Questions are powerful. Jesus is teaching us that. It values the person of the individual and where they are. Jesus doesn't ask the same question to every person he deals with. He knows the right question for each person in each situation. It's fantastic. He asked one person who was sick, do you want to get well? At first, that guy was probably like, duh. <laughs> but there was more to it, Jesus is saying. Ask questions. They're relational, they're personal. And we should mean them with sincerity. We don't just ask questions and wait so we can go, ha! We should listen, honestly listen. We should love these people made in the image of God. We should learn. We're going to learn. We don't know everything. And then we can engage where they are. Build on common ground because you're getting to know them. Not only that, look at, Jesus, look at the level of these questions. This is so wise. First of all, Jesus says, who do the crowds say that I am? So at first, our conversation is talking about something out there. That's kind of a nice way to start. It's a little safer to talk about what they think. You ever do that? Well, they say. Who's they? Well, but we can talk about ideas out there. They're out there. Oh, we can think about it. It's a great, huh, what's going on? What do people say? That's one level. But then Jesus presses in with the next question. What was it? Who do you say? Pick a team. Make a choice. What do you think? What do you think? Who do you say? Personal. Oh, who do you say that I am? It's very personal. Wow. Peter knows the answer. What does Peter say to Jesus' question? You are the Christ of God. You are the promised divine king who saves God's people and renews the world. So two, two things to see here. Number one, Jesus has questions for us, right? What does our culture say about Jesus? Who do they say that he is? How would you answer that? The next one, he said, this is not just for those disciples, it's for you. Who do you say right here today that Jesus is? Who is he? How would you answer that? And is your life fitting with that truth? I know a lot of us would say, well, Jesus is Lord. He's the Christ of God. You know, another question Jesus asked in Luke chapter 6 was, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? It's a good question. Shows our own unbelief. Jesus is Lord. And a lot of us are like, Amen. But I've got reasons as to why I don't obey all his commands. <laughs> That's called unbelief. There's a disconnect. 
If Jesus is Lord, then what should we do? Obey, trust, every time, all the time. He's Lord. We can trust him. Oh, well. Jesus, Jesus teaches us here to ask good questions, doesn't he? Okay. If, you wanna, if you're persuaded of Jesus, you want to persuade others, what do we need to learn to do? Ask questions. Ask questions. Ask good questions. Let's remember now those three lessons we saw from Paul. Build on common ground. Question the disconnect. Challenge and resolve with the person of Christ. So say you tried to build on common ground about Jesus in our culture. You got any common ground to start with? Isn't it, isn't it kind of obvious that Jesus is just like lurking over our culture? Think about this. Has anyone in America, generally speaking, not heard of Jesus? Very few. Isn't this awesome? Think of what Paul had to work with. He goes to new places. He's like, got to start from scratch. There's a man named Jesus. Huh? Never heard of him. We don't have that problem here. And nearly everyone thinks of Jesus, uh, thinks well of Jesus, generally speaking. So Gandhi, what did he think of Jesus? He was, he was a great teacher, gave us the highest ethic of love ever. Okay. Martin Luther King Jr., what did he think of Jesus? <clears throat> Might have been a Christian. Definitely thought Jesus was an excellent teacher. Oprah. Oprah likes Jesus. Sort of. <laughs> Do you know Jesus is mentioned in the Quran more than Muhammad? Think about that. Jesus is in rap songs. Jesus is a humongous movie star. How many movies have been made of Jesus? Jesus was just on the History Channel quite a bit recently. Jesus is in the Da Vinci Code. Uh, what year is it? 2015 what? A.D. Folks, we date history after the life of Jesus. He is lurking over our culture. Do you have common ground to ask these same questions to a friend? What do you think people think about Jesus out there? Is, any gonna be, is anyone you know going to be like, what? Who's that? Oh. You can borrow these questions. Not only is Jesus lurking over our culture, he's lurking in our culture. Have you ever noticed that in every good story, seemingly every good movie, there is someone who sacrifices themselves to the salvation and the deliverance of others? Did any of you see that cartoon movie, Inside Out? It's really fun. It's a fun animated movie. And I won't even try to explain this movie to you. But there's an, a, they're an imagination, imagination land. Follow along. And the imaginary friend, uh, what? Look, all I'm going to say is, in the storyline, he gives up his life to save. Okay? Uh, Return of the Jedi, what is Luke's willing to give up his life to save? Harry Potter, what's he willing to do? Give up his life. Watch for it. 
Watch for it. Any story that has moved you, uh, Lord of the Rings, what, what, is, what is Sam and Frodo willing to do? Give up their lives. The story, the true story of the one who's willing to give up his life to save is in every good story. It's in every good story. What he's done is lurking in our culture. Do you, all I'm saying is this. If you open, do you have common ground to work from to talk about Jesus? All you want, all you need. Build from common ground. Ask questions. Now, now we want to do what? Question the disconnect. Okay, the disconnect, the disconnect. Okay, say so you start a conversation and, and someone you're talking with is willing to say something about Jesus. They could give you the Gandhi Jesus, which is he's just a good teacher, so you should believe some of what he said about being nice and loving. They could give you the Oprah Jesus. He's a man who found higher consciousness in himself, and you can too. Um, you can tell what I think of that one. Unless they give you, he's the Christ, the Son of God, is revealed in the Bible, and I want to live for him. Then you have some persuading to do, right? So maybe here it's time to ask another question. Uh, how does one know who Jesus is? How could you find that out? Uh, it's not going to be from watching Oprah, is it? Is it going to be from reading the Da Vinci Code? Should you just make it up? Well, no, that's, none of those would lead you to any real historical person. The, the only way to take the actual Jesus seriously, drumroll, can you guess, is to consider him in what he said from the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are by far and uniquely the earliest sources about Jesus. They're the only real sources about Jesus. They're all written within, what, 30, 50 years of his life, depending on how you date them. They're honest sources. They show that Jesus is both in and a part of his culture, but, out, but also amazingly counterculture. They're honest about the Christian leaders. How do the disciples look in the Gospels? Do they always know everything, always get everything right? No, they're shown time and, time and again to be, to be foolish, to be, to be misunderstanding. Isn't it amazing that our Christian documents show the beginning of our Christian leaders to be very flawed? That's called honesty. Not only that, the four Gospels show a similarity and a dissimilarity you would want from real historical accounts. So, in other words, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were identical in everything they said, we'd be like, somebody made this up. If they confronted all the time and said absolutely different and opposing contradictory things, you'd be like, we can't trust any of this. Instead, it's just like, it would, like you would expect from real history. Unity and variety. These are trustworthy. Are you going to have to talk about this in culture? You're going to talk about this when you persuade. Who is Jesus? He's like this, whatever, whatever someone says. How do we know who Jesus is? We've got to look at him for what he said about himself. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, say you did that. Look here at Luke 9. Just a couple of verses, but it's amazing what Jesus says. What does Jesus call himself in verse 22? The Son of Man. That's got to be, to English ears, one of the weirdest titles. Can you imagine calling yourself that? I'm a son of man, and everybody's like... 
Yeah, we learned about that in school, how that happens. What does this mean? Well, from a Jewish point of view, this is an incredible statement. Some 80 times in the Gospels, 80 times Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Do you think he's on to something? Quite clearly, this is a reference to a prophecy from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel 7, you have this strange person who seems to be a mix of human and divine, and he's the ultimate alternative to the beastly nations of the earth. And he receives from God Almighty the kingdoms of the world forever. He is the cosmic king forever. That's who the Son of Man is. And what does Jesus call himself? I'm the Son of Man. So what does Jesus say about himself over and over and over and over again? I am the true and cosmic king of everything forever. That's what he says. Moreover, look at this. I got a slide for this one. More explicitly, John 10, John 14. What does Jesus say in John 10, 30? It's coming. It's coming. Is it? No. Good. John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. So he didn't claim to be a brand new, fresh God. Never said that. He believes he loves the God of what we call the Old Testament. He doesn't say, claim to be a new God. He says he claims to be one with God. One with God, equal to God. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. In John 14, 6, you've heard this, but amazing. Who can talk this way? I am the what? I am the way to live. I am the what? The truth. Everything was made through me. I, am, I made this. It comes from me. I'm the truth. And I am the life. And if you want to come to God, there's one way to do it. No one comes through the Father except through me. Period. We had somebody who wanted to rent this building several years ago. And I was kind of asking them questions about what they believed. And in the end, they said, well, we like the teachings of Buddha, Muhammad, and Jesus. So for me, that's a neon sign going, disconnect, disconnect, disconnect. And so I questioned the disconnect. What, I said, do you do with all the contradictions? Because there are a couple. And the lady looked at me and says, we ignore them. <laughs> I don't even know what to do with that disconnect now. I'm so taken aback by this. What? Look at what Jesus says. I am the cosmic king forever. I am the son of man. I am one with the father. I am the way to the father. That's what he has said. If this is what Jesus claimed, and it is, how on earth can you call Jesus a good teacher? Is that a disconnect? So for, do you see what's happening here? If someone says, I'm God, and they're not God, can they also be a good teacher while saying they're God and not being God? No. No one questioned the disconnect more effectively than C.S. Lewis. He's a pro. So I'm just going to quote him. Are you ready? Here we go. C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. Continuing. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a what? A lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg. That always makes me laugh. I love that so much. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must. <laughs> he's pressing on the disconnect. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Amen. That's called questioning the disconnect. So, and he does it so well for us. If we, we're talking about Jesus, we're building on common ground. We're looking about what Jesus said about himself. And then we're saying, okay, now what? Because we've seen it would be totally unreasonable foolishness to say he's just a good teacher while looking at what he said about himself. And so Lewis puts it so well for us. What are the, the three L's? He's either a, a liar. I'm God. I know I'm really not. I'm just using all of you. And if he's a liar, what you should you do with him in Christianity? Moving on. Or he's crazy. He's a lunatic. He's a poached egg. <laughs> and if he's crazy, what should you do with Christianity? He's crazy. Or you do have another option. He's Lord. And if he's Lord, then what? Bow and worship, trust. And, and now to add on to it, if you look at what he's taught, I mean, Gandhi says this is the highest ethic of love out there. So do you think a liar is giving you the highest ethic of love out there? Do you think a lunatic is giving you the highest ethic of love out there? How could the craziest person in history give you the wisest teaching ever? What? He's Lord, folks. Question the disconnect. It doesn't make any sense to call Jesus anything but Lord. So, we ask questions, Jesus show us. We build on common ground. Hey, Jesus is lurking everywhere. Let's talk about him. We question the disconnect. Who is he? What did he say about himself? And finally, we challenge and resolve with the person of Jesus. What compelling reasons could you give someone to persuade them about the uniqueness of Jesus? Well, a lot of people think that Jesus' last name is what? Yeah, it's not his last name, right? It's a title. And I like to say that Christ means promised, divine, king. So let's think about the promised part. We're so used to this, it blow, uh, we, get, we think this is, oh, yeah, sure, promised, prophecies, okay. Were there any prophecies about you before you were born? Ha, 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 we laugh, of course not. 
do you realize what this takes? To have detailed prophecies about you hundreds of years before you were born. Number one, let's be frank. I don't want to offend anybody, but none of us are this important. (laughs) Nobody cares except for our moms about when and where we were born. Okay, I'm going to die one day, and 50 years later, no one will be that bothered except for probably my kids, and I will disappear. I am not important. Go ahead and say it with me. It's actually therapeutic. I'm not important. I'm not that important, okay? Jesus has prophecies about when and where he will be born, written in Scripture. History is waiting for him. And I don't have time for it in this sermon, but how many prophecies, detailed prophecies, could you find about Jesus? It's unbelievable. We read one today. We know where he's going to be born. Bethlehem. We know how he's going to die. We know he's going to be born of a virgin. We know he's going to visit the temple because it's important. Realize this. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD and it hasn't been since. He visited the temple. We know he would be preceded by a notable prophet. Oh, John the Baptist. We know he would do miracles. We know he'd be betrayed by a friend, hung on a cross, but his bone's not broken, which is interesting because that's how they killed people. They broke their knees so they couldn't breathe anymore. We know that his clothes would be gambled for. That's kind of odd. And we know that it will rise from the dead. It's all promised in the scriptures. That's, that's incredible. Is there anyone else like this ever, period? There's no one like this. It's just scratching the surface. Number two, Jesus performed miracles. I can't spend a lot of time on this either, but it was done in crowds. Crowds. Peter can preach in Acts. You all know what happened. You all saw it. There are recordings of his miracles extra-biblically by those who hate him. They had to call him like a witch doctor. But that tells you something. He must have been doing something to make them at least have to say that. He did miracles. And not only that, they were honest miracles. So, you know, what would you have done if you were the Christ, right? And you're getting sick and tired of the Pharisees. If you saw Harry Potter, you know, he, he puts a pigtail on the little annoying kid, right? Wouldn't you ever want to play that one on the scribes and Pharisees, especially because pigs are unclean? You know, you could, you could give them horns or something, um, real, real something cruel, nefarious, right, if you can do miracles. Never does a miracle like that, not once, never once. Every single miracle is to restore something. It's to build something. It's to heal something. It's to bring something back the way it should be. It's loving. Not only that, verse 22 What does Jesus say about himself in our text right here? Hey, guys, verse 22, the Son of Man, and this is what what his audience of the day could not process. They could not process this. The Son of Man must suffer many things. No, no, the Christ can't do that. But what did he say about himself? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Oh, and one more thing. On the third day, rise from the dead. That's impressive. If you can pull that off, if you can tell me how you're going to die, and then on the third day you're going to rise from the dead, that's doing something. (laughs) Wow. Again, I can't give you all the evidence for the resurrection, but you got a famous death, a famous tomb, sealed and guarded by soldiers, empty. Empty. Nobody knows what to do with it. 
Yet a crowd of witnesses basing their message on the resurrection and willing to die for it. It's one of the strongest proofs for Christianity. Would you die for something you knew was a lie? People die for lies all the time, but they don't believe their lies. But would you die for something you knew was a lie, something you concocted? I mean, think of Peter. We're going to crucify you upside down. You better recount. Recant. If I was a liar, I'm like, crucified upside down, come and clean. You know what? I made this up. Heck, even if it's true, some would recant. Nobody wants to be treated like that. Peter says, I don't know what he said, but it was something like, bring it. It's true. Finally, maybe the most compelling reason for our day. You've got these intellectual, solid ground. Listen, was anyone more loving than Jesus if you look at his life? This can melt you down and anybody you're talking to. How does he treat a leper? He touches him. How does he treat the untouchable woman with the bleeding issue? He heals her and calls her daughter. How does he treat Zacchaeus, like king of the mafia, tax collector, head of the tax collectors? Hey, bro, I'm coming to your house. And then when Zacchaeus repents, he calls him a son of Abraham. You're in as much as any priest. How does he treat, you know, this is mind-boggling. We all have groups that are good and groups that are bad. And every culture does. And, and Jesus, he had followers from everywhere. Joseph of Arimathea was, was rich. Nicodemus was part of the religious leadership that hated him. He had followers from everywhere. He loved them all. Who has ever done this? And he did it with perfect integrity. He did give the highest ethic ever, and he did live it. He actually says, can any of you um, condemn me for sin? <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun in this room? We'll just, we'll just set up a mic right here. We could bring us up one by one. And you could all ask the question. This is especially fun if members of your family are here. I could just set up this mic right here, and, and you come, come up first. And, you know, here, I'll go first. I'm the pastor. And, oh, no, my mom's here today and my dad. I could ask, could any of you condemn me of sin? And everyone in this room, especially my family, would be like, I, uh, yeah, try not to keep a list, but I can remember one or a million. Jesus is like, can you condemn me of sin? And mm. The only thing they had to kill him for, you know what they killed him for? You claim to be God, you deserve to die. And he would deserve to die for that, unless... He's God. Loving to everyone. And not only that, and this is, this is really where we want to land. The greatest deed of love ever is in Christ. And what, what could you honestly ask for from God when you know yourself to be a sinner? I don't know what you could ask for. But Jesus left his divinity somehow and all he deserved and took on flesh for you. And he did that so he could walk in your shoes and live the perfect life you could never live, always obeying the Father. 
And so, unbelievably, he could die on a cross, the innocent one, the one who deserves all praise and all honor, that he could die on a cross for our sins. Who does that? Who dies for their enemies? It's interesting in this in this passage, Peter says in verse 20, you're the Christ of God. Did you see what Jesus says in verse 21? Anybody like, oh, that's, that's strange. Look at verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to what? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell this to anyone. You're the Christ. Right answer, don't tell. Why? Saying, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and rise from the dead. You know, what's he going to tell his disciples after he suffers and rises from the dead? Tell everyone, okay? This is the point. Until you see Jesus as the Christ who suffers, dies, and rises, you don't have him right yet. So he's saying, this is why I've come to die in your place, to make you right with God, give you new life in the Holy Spirit, adopted by the Father. Don't you see, every religion out there says, earn your way, do good things, make yourself right. And Jesus says, I am the way. Hop on my back, put your trust in me, and you can have what I've earned. You can have what I've done. What love? It's grace. It's God's grace. Love for the undeserving through Christ. Honest love. It's love that says in the cross, I know what you've done. And I know how bad it is. And then it also says, and I love you. Oh, there's nothing like that. There's no one like Jesus. So, three things I hope for in application. Number one, listen. Jesus is Lord. He is the Christ of God. He is. Three applications for you. Number one, uh, I hope you're persuaded. If you have not trusted your life to Jesus, you're invited to today. Maybe you know God's moving on your heart and you're like, I, I want him. I need him. That's why we're here. It's, it's yours. It's a gift by faith. Take it. Be persuaded. Number two, if you are persuaded, what do we do? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. This week, it's time, ripe time, apples on the tree. We're talking about Christmas. Who do people say that Jesus is? Go ahead and try it. Hmm. Who do you say that Jesus is? And I know you'll all be like, ah, I'm trying to... What's going to happen? They'll probably just answer your question. Huh. You can build on common ground. Maybe you can bring up some of the things Jesus did, some of the things he said. Question the disconnect. Resolve it with the person of who he is. Persuade others. Last one. So, number one, be persuaded. Number two, persuade. Last one. Rest in him. I want to show you one more verse. Luke 10, 22. Will you read it with me? All things have been handed over to me by my Father, 
and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Can you know God truly on your own? Jesus has to show you. He's got to show you. Uh, really, our unbelief is too dramatic. Our selfish agendas, our pride is too dramatic on our own. We need him. We need his help. I guess what I'm saying is God is the great persuader. God is the one who turns on the lights to where you go, ah, Jesus. So there's two things to note from this. Number one, if you believe this, if you're persuaded in Christ, about Christ and you want the Lord Jesus, the beauty is you can know that's because God has come to you first and loved you so much to reveal himself to you. You're loved. Second, it takes the load off when you're going out there trying to persuade. We're going to try to persuade about Christ, and we're going to do our best, and sometimes people are going to go, mm. and we realize we can't change anybody's heart, okay? But there's one who can, and he uses dull tools like me and like you. So go out with boldness. Don't think it's on you to be perfect in persuasion. Uh, do we want to do our best? Well, of course. Do we have amazing principles to work from in Scripture? Yes. Yes, use them. Do your best. Be your best. But in the end, let's celebrate. He's the one who saves. He's the one who saves. So rest in that. Rest in that this Christmas. He came to save you. If you believe it, you're loved, deeply loved. So Jesus is Lord. I hope you're persuaded. And if you are, let's go out in his power, especially this week, and persuade. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing grace and your sending your son for us. We're overwhelmed. Uh, help us to believe, Lord, to trust who you are, what you've done, the beauty, the power of your son, the authority of his word. And Lord, for those of us who do believe, let us go out with boldness, knowing you're with us, you're the one who works, and be willing to engage, to ask questions, and to persuade. Lord, not for any notch in our belt, not because we have it perfect, we don't, but for love's sake, for love's sake, that we could share the beauty of who you are with a world that needs you so badly. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.